we turn this morning to the third of eight visions that are given to the prophet Zechariah. And as I've said before, each of these eight visions, they interlock with, with each other to tell a single story. The first vision gave us part of the story. God, in His jealous love for His people, He promises to return and restore them to Himself in a future new Jerusalem, a new temple city. The second vision then adds to the first. God wouldn't just build a new temple city. He would also destroy every enemy that stood in the way of building that temple city. And what we get today is a further description of the new temple city that God intends to build. If you glance back with me to verse 16, vision 1 only introduces us to God's major construction project. All we're told is that this house will be built and a measuring line would be, it would be stretched out over the city. Vision 3 now expands on the stretched out measuring line. And the meaning behind this measuring line becomes one of the most remarkable pictures of God's glory and His grace to sinners. At the risk of reduction, we might summarize vision three like this. God reverses the curse to dwell with a world of people in his holy city. God reverses the curse to dwell with a world of people in his holy city. And this third vision unfolds in two parts, followed by three exhortations. And I'd like to begin by unpacking the vision in its two parts. So let's pick it up together in verse 1 and 2. Zechariah sees a man with a, a measuring line. And I lifted my eyes and saw... And behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. Some of us may not have grown up around the steps involved in construction. But even today, building projects often begin with a measuring line, a long cord of sorts that surveyors use to, to mark off boundaries. Likewise, in the Old Testament, a measuring line was used in the, in the building of the temple in Jerusalem, or even the walls around the city. It was a hopeful sign to see the, the measuring line go out. It, it meant the time to build had come. But the measuring line could also be a sign of grave judgment. There are a couple of places 
where God stretches out the measuring line over Israel, but not to build, but to judge. To measure, to see where it will be divided up and destroyed. So, for example, in Lamentations 2.8, the prophet says, The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. We see the same thing in Amos chapter 7. You see, Israel presumed on God's grace. They thought, hey, it doesn't matter how bad we get. God's not going to destroy a city. But God did destroy the city in judgment. And off they went to exile. The temple, the walls, and all of it lying in ruins. But that wasn't the end of God's people. Even before going into exile, God had promised that that once the judgment was finished, He'd bring back a remnant, and He'd rebuild the city. And so both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they promised a day when the measuring line would once again go out, this time to build, not to destroy. The exile is now over. Zechariah sees a man going out to measure the city. But the question is, would it be for judgment or blessing? That brings us to part two of this vision, verses three and five, the three to five. Zechariah next sees an angel who says the measuring line is going out for blessing beyond anybody's wildest dreams. Verse 3, And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him, and said to him, Run, say to that young man, take that young man as Zechariah, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So you've got this interpreting angel, the one who's been telling Zechariah the meaning of all these visions. He goes out, presumably to see what this man with the measuring line is fixing to do. But before he gets there, he's met by another angel, presumably returning from the man with the measuring line. And this new angel has a message from the Lord that explains what the man with the measuring line is all about. And it's a message that's urgent. Run! Not for one second does he want Zechariah to misunderstand the nature of what's going on. He's not measuring the city for judgment. He's measuring the city for blessing. So this messenger is delivering good news to Zechariah about the future of God's covenant people. And as we'll see in a few minutes, that future includes you and me if we are in Christ. So first off, he says, 
Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls. That's a strange way to encourage a prophet who's sitting in a city that's destroyed and the walls are torn down and there's enemies taunting them on every side. Really strange. Hey, you're, gonna, you're not going to have any walls in your city. And he's looking around at destruction. Walls normally mean security, protection. Why build a city without walls? Aren't you just inviting defeat? No, no. This city won't have any walls because it won't be able to contain all the people and livestock. Or more literally, man and beasts. This pairing of man and beasts is significant. We see it first in Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 to 27. It's a picture of God's original created order. Man exercising his dominion rightly on the earth, including his dominion over the beasts in an abundant garden paradise. And so it makes sense to have a city full of man and beasts meant blessing. But it also meant that having man and beasts stripped from your city meant judgment. We get that in the flood. We get that in the exodus against Egypt. And later, the same kind of judgment falls on Israel for breaking covenant with God. When they go into exile for their idolatry, Jeremiah 7 and 21 say that God pours out His wrath on man and beast. Ezekiel 14 also says that God strips the land bare to bring Famine on the city, and the result is the cutting off of man and beast. Cutting off man and beast signified desolation and emptiness and curse. But amazingly, at the same time, Jeremiah and Ezekiel were promising this, this cutting off of man and beast, they were also teaching the remnant to look to God's future restoration. The city may be cursed now, but here's your hope, remnant. So this is Jeremiah and Ezekiel speaking to the remnant, going into exile. Yeah, all you see is des- desolation, but you who are faithful, keep this as your hope. God promises you a new covenant in which he will reverse the curse of exile for you. And when he brings that new covenant, here's what it'll look like. It'll look like restoring his people in a new kingdom, under the rule of a new David, and in his future earthly kingdom, man and beast would flourish on the earth. This gets laid out in Jeremiah 31, 33, and Ezekiel 36, and Isaiah 11 and 65. Zechariah now builds on those previous hopes from the former prophets. God's new city would so flourish with people and livestock, there's no sense in building walls. The bounty just keeps going out and out and out, almost as if the new temple city eventually swallows the earth. This was another way of God saying that He hadn't forgotten His promises 
All through the judgment they suffered, he, he hadn't forgot his promises. He was keeping them right now, even after the exile. Even if they couldn't yet see his kingdom in full as they're piling on bricks and, more, and mortar in a ruined city, God would eventually fulfill his promise to his people. And the temple they were building in Zechariah's day was to be a sign, a pointer to a future temple city, not built by human hands but whose designer and builder is God Himself. Where the the land was plentiful and the people were many. Zechariah is pointing us to the new Jerusalem. The Lord then gives another reason why the city wouldn't need any walls. I will be to her a wall of fire all around And I will be the glory in her midst. The city wouldn't need any walls because God Himself would be its security, its protection. And a couple of things come together with this imagery, teaching us that that God wasn't just interested in reversing the curse of exile, like we just saw with the, the man and beasts, God was interested in reversing the curse of the fall altogether, namely separation from God. Here's what seems to be happening. The imagery of fire, it it fits rather nicely with the virtue of God's jealousy that we already discussed from chapter 1, verse 14. Jealous for his people, and, and that jealousy then means judgment on their enemies. But in the, in the Bible, God's jealousy manifests itself as a consuming fire. So Deuteronomy 4.24, for example. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. His fire burns without dependence on any outside resources. It burns as a self-sustaining flame, and it judges anyone who calls His honor into question. You see that several places in the Old Testament. His fire breaks out into the camp and devours. Sin isn't tolerated. So with that in mind, if we we go back now to Genesis 3, Adam's sin separates humanity from the presence of God in the garden, and after cursing the woman and the man, Genesis 3.24 says, God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword, a sword of fire that turned every way to, to guard the way to the tree of life. God's holy fire actively banished sinners from his garden paradise. But what do we get here in the vision of Zechariah of this new city? It's a reversal of that situation. God's holy fire actively surrounds his people. 
And they're now dwelling in the midst of His presence. The jealous fire that once banished them now protects them. And on top of that, the, 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 the pairing of fire and glory also recalls the exodus. God's glory is when His intrinsic worth goes public. And in the Exodus, the the Lord manifests His glory. His, His worth goes public in the pillar of fire, leading them out of slavery, protecting them at the Red Sea. Remember, the fire moves around in front between Pharaoh and the Israelites. And then coming to dwell among them in the tent of meeting as they're going through the wilderness. But in this new city that Zechariah is describing, the Lord's glory isn't limited to a tent. It fills the city. It's the, the entire city becomes the holy of holies. In this city, God's intrinsic worth goes public from the center, glory in your midst, all the way out to the edges, wall of fire all around. His glory presence fills the city In other words, and like the glory fire burned to protect Israel in the Exodus, so here it constantly works for His people's good. This is a remarkable vision for the people returning from exile. I mean, they they see much of the city still lying in ruins. They are reflecting on the last 70 years years of judgment, desolation is all around them, vulnerability to their foreign oppressors, and all for what reason? Their idolatry. They're exchanging the glory of God for whatever the world would offer them. So they see what they deserve. They see judgment before them. Yet here, the people see God showing mercy, doing doing the impossible for them. He replaces the desolation with true abundance. He replaces their vulnerability with true protection He reverses the curse that they might dwell in His presence. He changes their world of idolatry into a city of glory where it's unthinkable to even think about an idol. Doesn't God come to us this way in Christ? We read of His holiness and His judgment in Scripture. We learn from Israel what we deserve for our sins, judgment. And then God shows us mercy, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves, replacing the wastelands created by our sins with an oasis of His glory in Christ. Isaiah makes many of the same connections we see here in in Zechariah. But in many 
In several places, Zechariah goes further. I'm just going to point you to one. He goes further. He expands on what this, this little snapshot we're getting here by Zechariah. He expands on it. And when he does, oftentimes he tells us how the Lord's temple city is actually going to be populated with people. How can it be that a jealous God that burns against people who who defame His honor? How can it be that this God welcomes sinners into such presence? You can go with me to Isaiah 4. Isaiah 4 teaches us that God washes His people from their sins through the work of His Messiah so that they might pop, these people might populate the city. Isaiah 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord, which would be like code word, red flag for you, Messiah talking about here. The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And, who, and he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. And then get this in verse 4. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. So we've got two kinds of sins being washed away. Or I guess it's seeing the sins in two different relationships. Vertically, in our relationship with God, washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and then cleanse the bloodstains of Jerusalem. That is, our sins and how they affect our horizontal relationship and murder and arguments and lack of peace. He's going to wash them all away. And then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and a smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. So he's saying this flaming fire is covering the entire temple mount, the royal city, Zion, for over all the glory. It's not even called a city anymore. It's just called glory. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. And the canopy it's talking about there is a wedding canopy where God Almighty dwells with His bride, His redeemed bride. And all of this is made possible, all of this that we're reading here is made possible through the Lord's branch, which we know from the New Testament is Jesus Christ. We only deserve banishment from this city. We only deserve the Lord's glory fire to consume us on the outside of the city, like it will do when the new Jerusalem comes and the lake of fire burns. 
forever. But because of the cross of Christ, because God's judgment fell on Jesus in our place, because on the cross all of these sins have been washed away, God's glory fire now encloses us for protection, not condemnation. If you trust in Christ today, you too will experience the glory of this new city when Christ comes again to establish it on the earth. He's talking about the kingdom to come and the new Jerusalem in Revelation 19 to 22. Zechariah has run his people all the way to the end. That's the main vision in two parts. Now we come to three exhortations in our passage. And all three of these exhortations, they, they grow out of the vision of this new Jerusalem just painted for us. We as Christians know this very well. The vision of the future affects life in the present. We've seen the future destiny here, the new Jerusalem, and now, and, 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 and now how God gets everything to that destiny, we'll see several steps he's going to take, judgment, redemption, rising to act, how God gets us there to that destiny has massive implications for the way you and I live in the here and now. So we're given three exhortations. Flee, rejoice, and be silent. Flee, rejoice, and be silent. So first of all, let's look at the exhortation to flee. Verse 6. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after the glory, he sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. So basically, flee because Babylon is doomed. Flee because Babylon is doomed. Now at this point, a significant number of Jews had returned from uh, the exile. But not all of them. Some were still scattered abroad. Kind of like Lego, Lego blocks. They're scattered abroad in our house after the return at the end of the day. There's still some in the couch and everywhere else. Still some people out there. Some of God's people are still scattered among these oppressive nations. And Babylon at this point becomes a code word of sorts for those existing oppressive nations. Historically speaking, Babylon had already been sacked by Persia under the rule of Cyrus in 539 B.C. Zechariah is preaching 19 years 
after that under the reign of another Persian king, Darius. But he's still using the name Babylon. Babylon is here, what we're seeing is becoming a type for all of the nations who oppose God and who oppress God's people. And that's really the story from from the beginning to end in our Bibles. The forerunner to Babel on is the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. You can make that connection because Genesis 11.2 speaks about the land of Shinar. Where does Daniel come? In Daniel 1.2, when he comes to the place of Babylon, Babylon, he calls it the city of Shinar. Same place. And then Revelation, it's the end of our Bibles now, picks up the same code word, Babylon, to speak of a different city, the city of Rome, for the first century Christians. So Babylon becomes a type, signifying the nations that oppose God and oppress His people. He doesn't care where God's people are scattered or in what century they are scattered. He's telling them not to grow comfortable in Babylon. Then He tells us why. God is about to fight for His precious people in another Exodus-like judgment on the nations. Remember with me for just a minute why God judged Egypt in the first place. He's not just randomly picking on Egypt. His son is there. Israel. My firstborn. He is precious to me. And you will let him go. He judged Egypt because he wanted his son free. And then came the plagues on Egypt. And finally Israel plunders them. So also in verses 8 to 9, we're getting same imagery from the Exodus. God's people are precious to Him. He who touches you touches the apple of His eye. That's covenant language from Deuteronomy 32. God encircled Jacob. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of His eye. So learning from the first Exodus, you can guess what's about to happen next. If these people are precious to God, He's about to judge the nations Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Folks, this is one step, one of the steps in bringing God's new temple city. God will judge Babylon, the wicked world. In fact, He has already sealed Babylon's fate in the cross and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right before Jesus died, He said, Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to Myself. 
And then we're also promised in Revelation that Babylon, the great city that, divide, that deceives the nations and fills its streets with the blood of the prophets and the saints, it will be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. There's an angel that comes down and the image is, he grabs this mountain, hurls it into the sea. And it says, the smoke will rise from Babylon forever and ever. In other words, Babylon is doomed. The world that opposes God is a sinking ship. Only one city will be left standing on the last day, God's city. God's word calls us to flee the evil of the nations. It calls us to escape the allurements of this present life and not to settle into the comforts of the evil age. Why? Because the evil age is doomed. The world around us is like a spiritual red light district, to use the metaphor of Jim Hamilton. It entices us with its glamour and cosmopolitan facade. It pretends to offer us security with more money, permanent job positions, perfect home defense system, a breakthrough in in medicine, concealed handgun licenses, or on the other side, increased gun control, Politicians promise security from the NSA, security in health care reform, security at the borders. And while Christians ought to speak justice and mercy into these situations, we dare not set our hopes here. Babylon is doomed. Babylon has never brought true security. It will fall, and it will bring all kinds of people with it. And you can read about them in Revelation 18. Kings and politicians, business owners and farmers, merchants and musicians, shipmasters and sailors, craftsmen and married couples, all who put their trust in Babylon will fall with Babylon. And if your mind isn't in tune with God's Word, you won't be able to tell the difference of whether you're in Babylon or Zion. You just go along for the ride and destruction will fall. And you will find yourself among those calling out to the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. If your security isn't found in the Lord alone in His glory presence in Christ that we see here, then you will fall with the world. So, daughters of Zion, don't flirt with Babylon. You belong to a different city. The world will keep, you, keep feeding you the lie that more happiness is to be found in the pleasures that it offers. And to flee the pleasures of this world is to flee joy, is to flee happiness. Isn't this what's behind every temptation we face? 
To walk away from the world's pleasures is to walk away from joy. That's how the flesh talks to us. But the second exhortation makes very clear that couldn't be further from the truth. To flee the comforts and pleasures and seeming securities of Babylon doesn't mean less joy. It means more joy. Why? Because God is in Zion and at His right hand there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. To use the words of David. So we move now to exhortation number two. Rejoice. Because God, uh, because Zion is growing and God is there. Rejoice. Because Zion is growing and God is there. So this is one more piece in God's plan to bring the new temple city that we saw earlier. The prophets don't when they give their picture of what's going to happen, they don't necessarily separate all, all things out in chronological detail. They just see it all as one piece, one picture. That's going to happen, that's going to happen, that's going to happen. How they happen and get mapped out chronologically isn't in there. It's not what they're interested in here. So this is one of the, more, one of the other pieces. We've seen the judgment of Babylon... Now we're getting another piece in this picture before the temple city comes. Zion is growing and God is there. Verse 10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Yes, sing and rejoice. That's a command. God is for your joy. Not against it when he's calling you out of Babylon. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Now, earlier we were told the new city wouldn't have any walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. What we get here is the how that's actually going to happen part. Many Nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. In that day. You see that? Future. Looks to the future. And this language of joining themselves to the Lord and the other phrase there, they shall be my people. It's all covenant language. The Lord is telling the Jewish remnant in Zechariah's day that a future day is coming when all kinds of Gentile peoples will become part of God's covenant people. 
And in doing this, Zechariah is reaching back to God's promise with Abraham to bless all nations through his seed and pointing forward to the day when that promise would be fulfilled. And we know that it has been fulfilled when the seed of Abraham came, Jesus Christ. And Ephesians 2 and Romans 11 tell us that when Christ died on the cross and rose again, the floodgates of salvation were thrown open to all the nations. He tore down the dividing wall of hostility, this law of Moses, so that Greeks and Spaniards and Urdu and Agori and Fulani and Turkish peoples could be grafted in to the rich root of all the promises given to Abraham simply by trusting in what God has done through Christ. And you live in the day Zechariah is talking about. The nations are joining themselves to the Lord Now, the New Testament says, as God draws them in through the gospel over all kinds of people who were once not his people, the Lord is declaring, my people, my people, my people. And you know what this means. It means that Zion is growing. The king is bringing the nations to his city. James says in Acts 15 that God is right now building the tent of David. He's rebuilding its ruins to restore it that the remnant of mankind might seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Paul says in Galatians 4 that Jew and Gentile alike who trust in Jesus are being gathered to the heavenly Jerusalem right now. Hebrews 12.22 says that Christians from all over have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, right now. Yes, let's also be careful to say that God will still inherit Judah as His portion. Verse 12. He will lift the hardening on Israel and bring them home to their Messiah towards the end thus incorporating them into his new covenant people, but he won't inherit Judah apart from gathering the nations. Or as Paul puts it in Romans eleven twenty five, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And that's happening today. It's one more step in God's plan toward his final temple city, which we get a glimpse of in Revelation 19 and 22. And God is there in that city. With all of His redeemed peoples. In verse 12, the ESV says that the Lord will inherit Judah, that is His people, in the Holy Land. I think it's better translated on holy ground. The emphasis falling not so much on geographical borders, though those might be included, but the emphasis is on the sacredness of God's dwelling place. The only other place in Scripture that we find this is in Exodus 3.5 at the burning bush. Moses, take the sandals off your feet, for you are standing on holy ground. 
the idea is that the Lord's presence so transforms this new city that everything becomes holy, sacred, pure, and set apart for the Lord. And we can say, in light of the New Testament, that in some sense, God, God's return to His city, Zion, has already begun. The glory presence has come to Zion in the person of Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh, and He tabernacled among us. This is Emmanuel, God with us, and we have seen Jesus' glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is Matthew 1 and John 1. Later in the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey. And the New Testament writers quote that, all four of them, in reference to Jesus riding in to town on the donkey before he is crucified. So it's part of the king's return. It's part of God's return to the new city. It's just that the king first has to die so people get into the city. And now, since Jesus is risen from the dead, God's Spirit dwells in the church, which the New Testament writers repeatedly refer to as the new temple as a guarantee that the building of the new Jerusalem is right on track. When God stretches out a measuring line, it will be done. He's not going to go broke over the project, declare bankrupt, miss a few pieces. It's going to happen, and it's happening And we wait, and we pray, and we act until Jesus comes to flood the earth with His glory city. So if this is the case, the question becomes for us, is this what you're excited about? Do you rejoice? Do you sing? Is this what you're giving your life to as God's people? Are we stuck in Babylon playing with pebbles because we cannot imagine what a diamond city is like? Is this new Jerusalem what you dream about from day to day? Is this the city that you're investing in and living for and talking about and welcoming others to? Because Zechariah's aim is to invigorate a new generation to give themselves wholeheartedly to the Lord and His kingdom, and his aim speaks just as loudly today.
is the fact that Zion is growing and the nations are coming and the Lord is taking us there to be with Him. Does this fill you with rejoicing and song and joy from day to day? Many of us lose heart because we fix our eyes on the miserable situations before us. We, be, we become so apathetic because all we can see is sin everywhere. In the world, in the church, in our homes, in our own lives, and the world becomes a dark place in a hurry. But Zechariah's vision beckons us to behold the God of the impossible here the one who can do far more abundantly than anything we can ask or think. A city sits in desolation, but God has plans for it that we cannot imagine. He is sovereign in power to overcome the sin and the despair of this age and establish a new city of peace, righteousness, and joy. And it's coming. It's coming soon, the bride tells us, and the, and the Spirit tells us in Revelation. And what are you doing to take people with you there to that city? Does it shape how you talk to the others still settling for Babylon? Are you giving yourself to the nations, whether going to plant or staying to support? Is it your burden to see the Lord made glorious among the 3,159 still unengaged people groups? No churches, no missionaries, no knowledge of judgment, no vision of the new Jerusalem or how to enter that city through Jesus. And we wonder in America, what does God want us to do with our lives? We live in a day of spectacular fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. So give yourselves to the nations far away and give yourself to your neighbors nearby. Get into the specifics of their lives and show them how Babylon will fall and how Zion will be lifted up. Invite them into the kingdom through the blood of Jesus. This is where God is taking the world. Here's a small way you might be part of that. This month, on August 31st, many refugees will arrive in Fort Worth, and World Relief is asking for some help. One of the services they offer to the refugees as they get assimilated to life in this foreign city is cash assistance for a few months as they're in search of jobs. Every month, this refugee cash assistance department, it will deliver checks to the refugee families that are in the World Relief Program. And they have invited us 
to join this team as they go out into the refugee homes to give them the checks and check up on them to see how things are going. You want to be involved in that? Talk to Andy Cottle after the service. And if your age or your health maybe limits you in some ways, dream of new ways to serve the nations coming to Jesus. Be creative. Here's an example. Rachel's grandmother gave herself to the nations. Nearly 36 years of service in southern Rhodesia with the IMB. You know it as... Zimbabwe. They had to eventually come home because of her husband's health. He died in January 2013. They were married for more than 66 years. She was also having complications with her health. She couldn't do all that she used to do, even in some of the speak engagements she had. But she could write. And so she did. Here's her book. A Thousand Times Yes. Two Doctors Who Answer God's Call. And it gives folks a bit of insight into her own missionary labors and an invitation to us all to join her in them in the mission. This was published in 2013. She wrote it at 89. She's, not, she's 91 now, and she may go to be with Jesus before the end of this day is over. She's not doing well. But her life exemplifies what Zechariah's vision is all about. Here we have no lasting city. We seek the city which is to come. She knows where true joy abides. And may it be so of us. If we truly capture this vision, if if this vision masters us, and arrest our hearts, then our lives will be way out of step with this world. You and I were made to enjoy a glory that is infinitely more thrilling than Netflix or football or Xbox or Facebook or sex or food or anything else in this world. We were made for God's glory city. And God's city is so wonderful because He is there. He is there. Think often of His glory. Read often of His glory. Talk often about His glory. Sing often about His glory. You can do that through tears. Treasure often His glory. Pray for God to open your eyes to see more of His glory 
you know what? The New Testament says we will be changed. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You don't behold, you're not going to be changed. But when you behold, you will be changed. Babylon loses its luster when you behold the king in his city. Which leads us to the third and final exhortation in our passage. Be silent. Because God is on the move. Verse 13, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. It's a figurative way of saying God's about to act and he has risen to do so. He was about to bring his heavenly purpose on earth. And the call for all humanity is to bow in worship before God's awesome majesty and his unstoppable power. This is a silence that's filled with with reverence and awe. You see the same thing in Revelation 8, verse 1. Jesus, he slits the seventh seal to enact God's purposes on earth. And the text says there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. It's it's a most appropriate response to the sheer majesty of God acting. Maybe we can compare it to the, in some small way, to the all-filled silence that we experience after hearing a thunderclap rattle the walls of our house. And in that moment, you're reminded of how small you really are. I can't make you feel this. In fact, I was sitting on the couch with Rachel on Friday and just telling her how disappointed I was in the sermon because how how, how do you describe this glory with words. How do you get people to behold this garden-like sanctuary, God's presence transforming the earth? How do you describe that so people leave feeling it? Like it goes down into your being and you wake up. I can't do that with words. She said, that's okay, just say that. All right. 
But I also know that God's Word is sufficient and the Holy Spirit is able to make us feel it, to make us know it, and to make us love it. So why don't we pray now to that end?